Uh, okay, so I gotta be honest with you. When I was thinking about what to say up here, I, I kind of drew a blank. Uh, I did, had no idea what to say, because uh, invariably I, I would come back to these memories, dozens of memories of, of me sitting out there where you guys are, and looking up here where some person, an Ira or a Robert or a Jackie Lydon, would be saying something smart, and it was hard for me to switch the POV in my mind to sort of imagine me up here, but um, I, was, I was griping about this uh, over text with uh, someone I used to work with, Lulu Miller, who's somewhere in here, I think. I think I saw her, there she is over there. Hey, Lulu. And uh, she made a good suggestion, which is that, you know what, just start with something that you love and figure the rest out. So this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna play you something I really, really like. And, uh, and uh, it does actually relate to what I wanna say. This is actually not radio. Uh, this is a beginning of a movie, uh, a movie called Birth. I don't know if any of y'all have seen it. All right. Uh, I want to play you the beautiful opening scene, and then we'll launch into some other stuff. So as a boy, all I wanted in life was to be able to do something like that, was to make like one moment like that. Um, because that's uh, such a perfect illustration of what I think music does for, for story. Like, I mean, this thing you're looking at is just a guy running. It, it's almost like banal. You know, it's so ordinary. But there's something about the music which elevates this little dude running down a path and makes it almost epic scale, makes it almost the size of myth. And there's something about the music, the way it somehow knows things that the guy, the characters don't know. The music seems to be out of time, and it's, it's telling you things, it's whispering to you, and telling you about what, what, what is in store for this man who's about to die, what's in store for this little baby who's just being born. So I just feel like, I, I, you know, from the age of seven, I wanted to do that. You know, people would ask me when I was seven, what do you want to do with your life? Oh, I want to write music for movies. And my parents were always like, how could you possibly know that when you were seven? But that's, I got that idea in my head. So I went to school to, uh, to um, you know, try and be a film composer, came out, basically did that for a few years, and um, discovered I wasn't very good at it. And this is after scoring a couple of movies. Um, I got fired a few times. I, uh, I wrote some music which thankfully has been lost uh, to time. I just realized I wasn't very good. Somehow like the, the problem of trying to solve uh, you know, narrative issues purely through music just wasn't working for me and so I decided to give it up. And this was about 2000, 2001. And it was right about the time when um, WBEZ announced that they were gonna do this thing called the Third Coast International Audio Festival I was sort of dabbling in uh, radio at that point, so I thought, all right, I'll go, I'll go check it out. And I'll never forget the, uh, the experience of walking into this room. It actually wasn't this room, but some other room. <laughs> they all kind of blend together, really. But uh, the, of, of walking into a room like this and seeing a, a group of people just like you guys. Maybe you guys are a little more stylish than we were uh, back then. 
From what I hear, you're much better dancers. <laughs> Where it is, Andy Mills, wherever you are. Um, but uh, so I remember walking in and looking at the, uh, just seeing the look on everybody's face, uh, seeing this look in everybody's eyes, uh, part exhaustion, you know, part this deep, deep hunger cloaked in shame. Because it's like we all are here and we, we so want to do this. We, we feel so deeply, so passionately about this work. And it's a little shocking to us how, how we feel. Like the, the, it feels impolite. It feels immature to care about it this much. And you see that reflected in all the eyes of the people that you look around. And it just makes it, you feel it more. And then you have all these sort of impolite feelings of, oh, I want to do it better than this guy. And, and it just gets very messy emotionally. Uh, and I remember seeing all that. All of us sitting here waiting for some sound to emerge from the speakers that would help us figure out how to be on, on the radio or in the podcast or whatever. Podcasting didn't exist then. But um, that sense of wanting some sound to instruct you as to who you are. Because I think that's really the, the question that's always here at Third Coast. Uh, really, any time that you have a microphone like this thing, it always poses the question to you, which is like, who are you? Like, who are you really? Like, when you point a mic at somebody, um, even if you're talking to them about farm subsidies or goldfish or something, really the question you're asking them is, who are you? And so that question is in, here in spades at uh, Third Coast. It infuses the air. So uh, I remember being in the room, feeling like I hadn't really made the whole music thing work, feeling a little bit like I'd screwed up asking myself that question and waiting, like everybody, for something to appear, some sound to emerge from these speakers. And let me play you the first uh, set of noises that I heard. I believe this was at the first Third Coast. It may have even been the first sound played at the first Third Coast. I could be wrong about that. Julie will fact check me later. Um, but this is the first sound that helped me answer that question. Uh, it was actually played by Robert Krulwich who I don't even think I knew him at that point. Uh, I had, certainly had no sense that I'd be working with him for so long. Uh, but he was leading a, a session, and he was playing this piece, because it won that year. And, um, well, it's called, uh, very simply... If... If. If... 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 If I were a fish trying to help someone, if I were a fish, if I were a finch, if I were a flame with the friend of the fish, if if I was a, a bird looking at the children that were really sick, if 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 I were a crocodile, a crocodile, if. If I were a plant, sorry. If I were a, a kid, kid, kitty. If, 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 if. 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 If.
uh, now, I remember the first time I heard that, uh, I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> like, people tend to think that I, I, because I make Radio Lab, that I like sound art, but I actually don't like sound art. I kind of hate it. And so I was like, what is this weird sound art that you're playing, Robert? But he was like, no, 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 no. And he played it again. We all, listened, we all listened to it again. And gradually, it began to make sense to me what was happening. This was a story about a boy who seemed to be in a hospital. If I were a kid, oh wait, if I were a plant at the children's hospital and I saw the kids go past, I'd think to myself, I'm lucky to be a plant seeing all these sick kids go by and I'm as fit as a fiddle. Well, I might be turned into a fiddle, but I'll be fit as a fiddle. Oh, and just the other week I had a biopsy. They, 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 so you, you learn that, okay, this is a boy who's at a hospital who seems to have cancer, and it becomes clear over time in a kind of Hitchcockian way that uh, what seems to be happening is that the reporter, a woman named Cher Delise, an amazing reporter from Australia, uh, seems to be walking around with this boy around the grounds of the hotel, and it's just asking him a series of what-if questions. You know, what if you were a bird? What if you're a plant? What if you were a frog? If I were a frog in the children's hospital, I'd be stuck in someone's throat because they swallowed me. Now they've got a frog in their throat. <laughs> if I was a, a bird... And I, I remember listening to this, and I think a lot of people of my generation who were there at the beginning and heard this piece probably had the same reaction. I remember listening to this and being like, this is, this is reported material. This is like, it's like a news profile, but a completely different set of beats attached to it. Like, it's real, real material gathered, a mic pointed at a boy, a boy talking about his life, but somehow the music inside this piece was so strong that it kind of turned the boy into music. It was almost like, I mean, you know, like the, the film clip I played you at the beginning, you know, that's an example of music and story, but there the music and the story are separate. They're two separate streams that are coming together and interweaving for that one moment of the scene. Here, it was almost like the music was coming from inside the boy, like you were hearing his internal space. It was extraordinary. And given what this kid was going through, I mean, here he's stuck on a bed, he's been swallowing all these pills, hooked up to machines, and yet, because of the way the music is constructed, because of his flights of imagination. It felt like within the six-minute frame of this piece, this kid was free. And it was so spooky. We were all sat there kind of spellbound. Here, check out how the piece ends. If I were a bird in a children's hospital, drawing a picture, I'd draw a cat and say, ooh, I'd draw a putty tat. <laughs> I always ruin a good picture. I add things on, think, oh, this is nice, and then I keep adding and adding and adding and adding. <laughs> and when I finish, I think, I've got too many things. See, like in this, I drew a dog here, <laughs> and then I decided to do a bed, and then I decided to do the pillow, then I decided to do the nurse, then I decided to do his hands, then I decided to do little, <laughs> like, little shadow of him in bed, <laughs> no under the sheets. The dog here spewing up. <laughs>
like the drawings and the art. They made me get better because once I did them, I thought, oh, this is a nice picture. And then inside it made me feel all, you know, that fuzzy feeling you get? kid sleeping on a bed well, that's how it ends with that unfinished sentence it's like you've got an if then statement but you only have the first half I just think what a what a brave ending you just leave people hanging and there was something about the story which just flipped a switch for so many people and I come back to it again and again as an example of, as a voice, really. As an example of voice. Like, this was an entirely new voice on the radio. And I don't mean voice like the child's voice, but I mean the voice of the producer, the voice of the person telling the story. I'd never heard anything like this. And so going from my first third coast to my second to my third, I began to think about, like, well, what was my voice? What was my voice going to be on the radio when I told stories? tell stories. And I kind of did what we all do uh, at the beginning, which is you, you listen to the voices around you. You know, you, you kind of, you wear the voices around you. Like if you could hear my early work, and thankfully it's lost on a hard drive at home and I couldn't actually get it out. I really did try and bring it, but it didn't happen. But what you'll hear is that from piece to piece to piece, I wear different voices. Like in one piece, I pretend I'm Ira. And I do this sort of the IRA delivery. Uh, it wasn't conscious, it just kind of happened. And then the next piece I would do Joe Frank. And I would kind of get that kind of midnight DJ sort of sound in the mid-range. And I would try that for a while. Like I've seen dark things. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, the next voice I would try to be a reporter, like an NPR-style reporter. And I would just switch. And I would kind of decorate myself with these voices uh, to figure out who I was. It was sort of like a decorator crab. I don't know if you guys have seen decorator crabs. No? I don't see any nods. Well, this, this person has. Basically, a decorator crab, it's, they hang out near a coral reef, and they grab bits of the coral reef to sort of embroider their shell for reasons no one quite understands. Um, it's probably sex. It probably boils down to sex. <laughs> but we don't do that here because we're public radio. Um, but anyhow, uh, you know, you wear all of these voices, the voices of the people you admire, as a kind of cloak. It's a kind of armor. And um, that's how you sort of begin. And that's how I began. I would just ping pong around between different, between different modes. But I sort of figured out that at a certain point, what you do is you, you choose moments in every piece you do. A tiny moment. Maybe it's three seconds. Maybe it's five seconds. But every single piece you do, you have to have three seconds of you in there. Of like your voice because really all a voice is is uh, like it just says here I am this is me It just waves to you and you recognize the guy in there so I told myself every piece I did I've got to have three seconds in there and that was my job I mean obviously your job is to get a job I mean that's a you got to do that you can't just please yourself you've got to please other people uh, but your job is also every time out to say here I am and that was, that's, I think, 
the IOU you write to yourself. That's what Krollwich says, that you write this IOU to your soul so that you hear yourself every single time. So let me play you a couple of here I am moments that I really like, that we've actually bumped into. These are just sort of almost arbitrary, uh, and that's kind of the point. Uh, here are a couple of voice moments, here I am moments. So this one comes from Andrea Seabrook, who is a brilliant NPR reporter. Is she in the room by any chance? I thought she might be here. No, in any case, Andrea Seabrook. So she, she's doing a piece with us, and she's reporting uh, about this particular place in Washington where they're trying to artificially rear wild whooping cranes. Don't think too hard about that last sentence. Um, the point is that she went to visit this place, and this is her in the studio uh, describing to us about her trip. This is unedited. So, so I went to this place, which I sort of knew existed, but I thought it was just like a little, you know, a little place north of Washington. It's really closer to Washington. It's just outside the Beltway, really. Um, and I started to drive in there, and this is one of the crazy things about this place, is there are all these signs. It's right near the USDA, and the Secret Service has a campus up there and stuff, and you drive into this place, and it's like driving, seriously, it's like driving out of the Beltway and into Jurassic Park. It is like, it's this crazy place, and there are these, there's a guardhouse and gates and a sign up that says, authorized vehicles only, and it looks off official and everything, but the gates are wide open and there's no one in the guardhouse. So you just, so you just sort of say, okay, well, I guess I'm, I'm authorized, which is sort of how I feel as a reporter in general. I am authorized. So I drive through the gate. This is that moment right there, okay? That's what, I'll play it again. I'm authorized, which is sort of how I feel as a reporter in general. I am authorized. So I drive. I love that moment so much. And I don't know why exactly, but it's like you feel in that little aside, at least I do, like I know Andrea Seabrook. Like I know her, not in the way that you know, like, you know, a set of things on a piece of paper, but like we've hung out together. We've had a beer together. There's something about that that just... Like, I know that she's a really fun person, because I, I can hear that in that, in that uh, little bit, but I can also hear that she's sort of fierce, like, don't fuck with me, I'm authorized. Like, so I, you get all of that in that one little digression. And, uh, you, I mean, you guys know that editing is, 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 is brutal. You know, you edit a piece, there's like murder at every, every single moment. But, uh, but for me, that little digression, that's non-negotiable. That has to go in because that's her voice, at least as I'm hearing it. Um, and I, I never quite know what to call that, those kinds of moments that are, that are so incidental, um, but so crucial. It's the first thing to go usually when you're editing, you know, because it doesn't serve any logical purpose. It doesn't seem to serve the story, but it is somehow serving the reporter telling the story, which is arguably as important. So I've begun to, begun to call it uh, little shit, this is the little shit, which is a, a, a term I got from a filmmaker friend of mine. He was describing uh, filming a story of two people talking at a, in a, a restaurant. And he said, you know, the, the scene doesn't really come together because of the foreground action of these two people talking. I mean, obviously that's important. But it happens because of that waiter in the back who spills the drink off, almost off frame. Like, that's the little shit that makes the scene. And so he would say, Am I, do I have enough little shit in my story? 
So I would sort of like, I transpose that onto, uh, onto voice. You know, like maybe the voice of a reporter, the voice, your voice, isn't directly related to the things you're saying, but it's the stuff on the edges. The little shit, the, the coughs, the sputters, the digressions and the asides. Um, that's the stuff that you have, like, do you have enough little shit? It's a question I always ask. Um, here's another one. This is another example uh, from a, a producer of ours, Sean Cole. Uh, Sean is a little shit machine. Uh, I will edit the hell out of him, but he will always go off into the studio and he will drop in little Seanisms uh, every 30 seconds. Here, listen to this. This is a story of, uh, that he produced about the, the first phone freaker. These are people who, uh, back when the, in the days of analog telephones, they figured out that they could whistle into the phone and dial numbers. And uh, this guy kind of created this whole revolution, or revolution, a whole trend of these sort of hackers hacking the phone system. And at a certain point, he became really famous, and the phone companies offered him a job. So this is, I'll just drop you into that moment. He got four job offers. All phone jobs. So he got a job at a little independent Millington telephone company. And he started cleaning telephones. Anything from cleaning phones to servicing equipment. Any kind of job will do. But any kind of job wouldn't do. He really didn't like it. It's that kind of thing where you realize your lifelong dream and then you think, wait, I can dream anything I want. I can dream bigger than this. And so in 1975 and 76, whatever, he, he moved, moved to Denver. Denver. Denver where every dream is in reach. Paid for by the committee to promote Denver. And he started hodnobbing with all the telephone guys and going to the Public Utilities Commission and... Did you guys hear that? I was like, what the hell was that? I remember hearing that when he, when he put that in. I was like, that is so bizarre. What the hell did you just do? Um, and I love that so much because it has no reason to be there. It does not do anything for the story. Um, but I think he just put it in because he kind of had to. He kind of had to hear himself in there, and I, and I love that. And that's the part that we won't kill. Anything else, well, not anything, but uh, it's all fair game, except for some of those moments. Um, and interestingly, I, I have found that, I mean, Sean's a writer. He's a really gifted writer, so he will write that stuff in. But I have found that um, many reporters won't bring the little shit until you make them stop writing. Um, there's something about the writing process that oftentimes that invites in the voices that you are not, the voices you feel you should be. Uh, and so what we'll often do is we'll say, okay, put the scripts down, uh, just tell me the story, and you start peppering them with questions, and they get into that uncertain space where they don't quite know what they're saying, and that's when the little shit comes out. Um, that's kind of an aside. All right, so let me play you a different, uh, another piece that... Uh, Kind of flipped the switch for me. This one begins with uh, a host intro. It happened on NPR. In the world of science, there's supposed to be a reason for everything. A reason why the sky is blue. A reason why dogs chase bicycles. There's even somewhere a reason why socks disappear in the washing machine. However, there is no generally accepted reason why you and I stand on our own two feet instead of loping around on all fours the way most animals do. Okay, so that's how the story begins. Uh, pretty, you know, conventional host intro. The question at hand is how did human beings come to stand on two feet? Apparently this is something that academics argue about. And uh, there are many theories. One theory is that we stood on two feet to use our hands so that we could hold our babies or eat food with our hands. Another theory is that we stood on two feet because uh, it frees up our diaphragm 
And if you free up your, your diaphragm, then you can run long distances. It means you can outrun game on a hot day. These are the theories. Now, as a reporter, you can choose to investigate this in any number of ways, probably by just going to the people with the theories and asking them to talk to you and then cutting their voices together and creating a conversation, and that would be your usual NPR situation. But listen to how Scott Carrier starts his piece. Oh, there they go. What? There they go. You see him crossing over no. there? No. Over to the right. Off quite a ways away, in fact. Way out there. A couple of years ago, my brother and I went to Wyoming to run down an antelope. I only see three over there. Well, there were about eight down there. Yeah. yeah it was August, and our plan was to chase one animal until it overheated and collapsed. It just took off running. Okay. You want to follow it? We had good reasons for what we were doing. One was that it seemed entirely possible. Another had to do with an argument concerning human evolution. In the first 30 seconds, you're like, you're going to chase an antelope until it dies? That's how you're going to report this piece? Like, your hello as a reporter is such an important moment. It's like you, so many uh, rules get established between you and your listener at that point. You know, is this going to be a nice formal conversation? Is it going to be kind of raucous? And he comes out and he says, I'm going to chase an antelope till, till it's dead. And you know at that point that nothing, that the rules have been suspended at this point. And, uh, and that he is going to, he actually keeps chasing the antelope through the course of the piece over and over and over. And he says, this is how I'm going to do it. I am going to investigate this story by running after the thing to see if I can catch it. We choose two does and follow them. And they run over another little hill. And on the other side, all of a sudden, there are 20 of them running as a herd. Following this herd is like following a school of fish. They blend and flow and change positions. There are no individuals, but a mass that moves across the desert like a pool of mercury on a glass table. They split again, burst into five pieces, and it's just too confusing. We can't tell whether we're chasing animals that have run for two minutes, or 20 minutes, or two hours. I catch up with my brother, and he says, um, First of all, you want to talk about voice. There's something about Scott Carrier's voice that is just so hypnotic. You know, like I, have, I often think of storytellers, like really good storytellers, as like shaman, and they kind of are convening the drum circle in a way, and their job is to lure the group into a kind of dream state, because that's where the stories live. They live in that dream state. And Scott somehow does that with the writing and with his voice. And if you know him, you know this is not a stunt. He really wants to catch that antelope. He really wants to prove this theory. And as this piece progresses, and it starts on NPR, I think in 1970-something, and then migrates uh, many years later to This American Life. And uh, as the piece is progressing and as he's chasing antelope over and over again and continuing to not catch them, uh, the nature of his quest changes. It goes from a sort of a scientific inquiry to something much more personal for him, which is about you know, authenticity in the modern world. I have no desire to participate in the market economy or the democratic process. I have no goals or ambitions other than to someday go back to the desert with my brother and try again to run down an antelope. I have a plan, and I'm trying to follow it, but it's hard. It's a hard plan to follow. 
I'm trying to get in shape, and I'm trying to live like a primitive man. Sometimes I feel like I'm not succeeding at either one. I've read a lot about primitive cultures, and I use that term primitive in the sense that it means original or primary. For maybe 99% of human history, a few million years, humans were hunters. They didn't get up and go to work each morning. That started with civilization, and civilization is nothing but a heartbeat of recent time, 10,000 years at the most, and to hell with that. I want to wake up naked and alone in the desert. I want to eat sand and drink piss and pass out screaming from sunburn and spider bites. But I know it won't work, and I know it won't happen. Either because I'm a coward. I think this might be my favorite piece in all of public radio, right here. It was definitely the moment for me. It was like an imprinting moment with this American life. I was like, I will follow this show anywhere, because this is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> um, and it also, I also think there's something kind of uh, important to draw from this, which is that you know we as storytellers, we we begin our stories with questions. The questions are what drive us, and. Um, there can be questions about anything, you know, questions about how the world works or questions about ourselves, but the questions are what sort of are the bait that leads us forward. But we sometimes uh, think that our job is to find the answers to those questions, and that is certainly part of our job. But I would say it's not the dominant part. Uh, our jobs hinge on, I would argue, the extent to which we can not just ask the questions we're asking, but the extent to which we can be the questions that we're asking. And that's what Scott is doing here, and that's what I find so, so intoxicating about this story, is that he's not just asking a question. He's, he's allowing that question to possess him, to sort of enter his body. I mean, that's what you hear. The dominant sound of this piece is his feet hitting the, gr the dirt. That's the, that's the sound that propels the piece, because this question is literally physical for him at this point. Rilke, in one of his uh, letters to a young poet, uh, he says over and over again, don't worry about the answer. Be patient. Your job is to live the question, be the question. And for me, good radio versus great radio, um, I really, and I really do feel like good is the enemy of great, uh, I feel like it, what, hint, like what distinguishes good from great is the extent to which you can allow the searches, the quests, to completely inhabit you. The extent to which those questions actually, you embody those questions. And Scott, for his part, chased that damn antelope for 12 years. 12 years. And that became a piece on This American Life, I think, in 1997. An encapsulation of his 12-year search to catch an antelope. And the piece ends, and he's right there on its tail. And like if, you don't get the conclusion. He's just right there, and he can see it. It's like tail is as far away as you are from me right here. And that's where he ends. So I ask myself, when I think, and I think of Scott when I, uh, when I do this, I ask myself, like, am I putting my whole mind into this? You know, am I putting all my nerve endings into this? That's what separates, I think, the good stuff from the great stuff, is how much you're throwing yourself in. Um, and now 12 years, I was thinking about the number 12 a lot as I was thinking about what to say to you guys. 12 years is, seems like a long time to do anything, to chase an antelope, to work in radio. Um, and I've been, I've been doing this for about 12 years now. And 
I do firmly believe, I've, I've come to the opinion that actually you don't know if you're any good for 12 years. Um, and I offer that to you as a liberating thought. Uh, because, I mean, the way I see it, it's like you, in 12 years from now, you're a completely different person. If, the 12, if you from 12 years from now met the you of now, you would have nothing in common. You wouldn't even want to have a beer. So if that guy still likes the work you're making now, then it's good. That's, that's the real litmus test. I mean, sure, you can kind of put your work in front of people, and you can watch their eyes get wide or get dead. Uh, but they're sort of confined by the present, just like you are. So in some sense, their opinion is, uh, is stuck in time the way that your opinion is. So in a way, I would say, don't even wonder. Just make stuff. Just make stuff. That's your job. Make stuff and, um, and get very lost. That would be the other thing. That would be my only other advice. Get lost. That sounds actually mean, but I, I didn't mean it that way. I meant it more in the, uh, well, here's what I meant. Let me tell you an anecdote, which I, I don't talk about because for obvious reasons. But I'll tell you guys. 2004, uh, Radio Lab was a couple years old, and um, we were marooned on the schedule late Sunday nights. No one was listening. And I, I mean that quantifiably. I think we had zero listeners. And um, the station was sort of like, all right, this, let, this, this, this has been a fun little art project. Let's just wind this thing down and uh, just go on to other things. And so in fact, the station manager came to me uh, and he said, hey, do you want to do an hour on Wagner's ring cycle? And I thought to myself, okay, Wagner, Wagner, Wagner. I don't know much about Wagner. My dad used to blast it in the car, so in a way, I, know, I, I actively, aggressively don't want to know anything about Wagner. But, uh, oh, sure, okay, Wagner, why not? I mean, maybe this is a way for me to even prove the worth of Radiolab. So, yeah, sure, Wagner. Um, had I done five minutes of research, I would have realized that the Wagner's Ring Cycle is an 18-hour cycle of operas that tries to encompass the totality of European art in one work. It's like imagery, you got music, you got you know, mythology, you got psychology, you got metaphysics, it's all thrown into this one work, and it was supposed to be the work of art that ended art. That was Wagner's intent. I mean, I, I could have found this out in 30 seconds, but I didn't, and so I said, sure, okay. Uh, fast forward a couple of months, I... Uh, I have missed four deadlines. Uh, I'm on the verge of getting fired, and uh, I haven't slept for four days. I think I need some Wagner for this part, actually. Um, I remember I was trying to do this story, and the words were literally swimming on the, on the screen. And there are 40-something characters in this piece, and they're drawn from every sort of corner of, of Teutonic mythology. And I was trying to figure out who's in and who's out, and which characters to highlight, which to sort of like push aside. But I was being edited by a bunch of opera freaks who thought that every character was important. And they wouldn't let me take anything out. I was like, can we at least lose the incestuous twins? No, they have to go in. The dwarf at the bottom of the river, can we get rid of him? No, he's got to go in. I, and there were like these metaphysical ideas that I couldn't quite grasp. So I had the pressure of ideas that were just out of reach. I had the pressure of, uh, of being a newbie and talking to people who were very sophisticated. And I had the pressure of deadlines that were just going splat, 
left, right, and center. It was awful. And um, we at Radiolab have given this state of mind a name because it happens quite often. Uh, we've, we call it the German forest. This is the scary place that you end up sometimes. You end up in the German forest if you do this work. Um, now just to give you a sense of how bad it got, um, months after it was done, months, uh, I, and I missed so many deadlines during this thing, it's a, it's a wonder I'm standing here with it. I, had, I, hadn't, I should have been fired after this. But months afterwards, I would go to meet my wife for dinner, and I'd be 10 minutes late, and I'd look at my watch and say, oh, I'm, I'm 10 minutes late. And that simple thought would unleash a cascade of physical, physiological responses. My heart would start to pound, my palms would get sweaty, the room would literally spin, and I'd have to sit down. And I was talking to a science reporter recently, he was like, dude, I think you have PTSD. <laughs> like, Wagner gave me PTSD. That's how bad it got. But here's the sort of crucial point. When I heard the thing on the radio later, I was like, oh, somewhere in the middle of that trauma, I think I found my voice. Let me play the damn thing for you. Um, I'm not saying it's the greatest thing in the world. I would not classify this as one of my favorite things. So. I'm breaking, breaking uh, form here. But I'm just going to play you uh, a bit of that. This is uh, ripped from the middle of it. It's a deconstruction of uh, the way that Wagner uses light motif. Every character, every object had a little musical motif attached to it. And this begins with a deconstruction of uh, Wotan's spear. Wotan is the head god. Every time his big spear would come onto the stage, you would hear this little bit of music. So I'll play it for you. The spear. From that spear motive, you get something like... See, I, no, I can't no. hear the difference If there. I deconstruct it for you, you can. Can you give me like a 30 okay. second deconstruction? Sure, the spear motive, let's put it in the convenient key. The scale rhythmic going down. Okay. First thing, let's put it in the major. Instead of continuing down, let's jump back on ourselves. Then let's slow it down. I see. This was an epiphany. The one thing anyone can hear in Wagner's ring is flux. It's unstable music, huge masses of sound swirling endlessly like waves. And yet, inside that flux, there is a center. You feel it. Millions of musical cells, multiplying, mutating, make up the 18-hour organism that is the ring cycle. Each cell attached to a character or idea, all these characters and ideas in constant states of change, like what we're listening to now, just one of those cells, a spear motive, a symbol of Wotan's power and authority, transformed into this.
Now again, I'm, I, I, I'm not saying this one of my favorite things, it's actually not, but it was one of the first times when I heard myself on the radio and I thought, all right, I could work with that. It's not, I, I see where that guy's going and I kind of want to go there with him. Uh, so, you know, Ira talks really beautifully about this idea that when you start making stories, uh, you land in this gap. I've sometimes heard it called the tragic gap, which is that you have really good taste, that's why you got into it, you really know what to listen for, but your skills aren't yet up to snuff. And that puts you in a weird sort of like bit of cognitive distance, dissonance because you know what's good, but uh, you can't make what's good. And so most people get stuck there. They never make it out. And for the, those of us that do, it sometimes takes years and years and years and years and years. And for me, it did. And this is one of the first few moments. And I had been you know, com committing myself mind, body, and soul to audio storytelling for five years. But this is one of the first moments that I actually heard myself and I think, I think I'm pulling myself out of the gap. I think I'm emerging. And uh, there's a real correlation, to use the science word, uh, between time spent in the German forest and these moments of emergence. That's what I believe. And, um, and to be clear, you know, it, it does, the German forest changes a bit. I mean, the first time you end up there, it is terrifying. It is definitely terrifying. And then the second time you end up in the German forest, it's terrifying. And the third time, it's, it's terrifying too. But somewhere around the fourth, maybe the fifth time, it's terrifying again. But, um, I mean, you, but my point is you feel the physical sensations of it. That never goes away. That sense of the work is just too big. I can't get my head around this. How am I going to do this? That never changes. But what does change is that the terror gets reframed for you because now you know you've made it out a few times. So the terror takes on a different character. And it's like your vision gets to a higher altitude where you can see over the treetops and into the future where there you are, you're still there, you're still alive. So in that way, you begin to recognize the German forest for what it is. It's actually a tool. It's the place that you have to go to hear the next version of yourself. And so you begin to say things to yourself, uh, like, okay, every third story I'm gonna do has to take me into the forest. I get two hall passes, you know, I get two stories which are easy. The third one's gotta hurt. It just has to. It's gotta make me sweat. And you tell your editor this, you know? Give me two easy ones and then the third one, make it really hard. And um, in that way, you, begin, you sort of build what psychologists call a self-transcending structure, which is a fancy term, but basically it's a mechanism by which you can hop out of your current self and into the next self. It's a little institutionalized bit of change that you put into your work. Every third one, I'm gonna sweat. And um, like that's the gift of this work, I think, is that it helps you answer that question, who are you, in different ways every time. So the, in a way, your work has to has to be, has to make you feel stupid. It has to make you feel exposed. Otherwise, it's not pushing you towards that, a new answer. I'll give you an example. And this is an example from last week at Radiolab. Perhaps you, maybe some of you bumped into this. Um, 
we air an episode on truth. And uh, as part of that episode, we, we air a very difficult, very painful conversation uh, with two people who believed they had been attacked by chemical weapons. The overwhelming scientific evidence was that they had not. Uh, we wanted to, and it was an honest question, we wanted to know what they had seen so that we could take that back to the scientists and say, well, what about this? Somewhere in the middle of that conversation, um, one of our interview subjects broke down and accused us of being extremely insensitive, of denying a genocide. And it was a very, very painful tape. And it's the kind of tape that if you're, if you're cared about self-preservation, you edit that shit out. You leave that on the cutting room floor. But we, we thought to ourselves, you know what, this is, this is an episode on truth. And if one of our points is that the search for truth can take you down some rabbit holes and it can get very, very messy, it can get very hard, and sometimes it blinds you to much larger realities, well, okay, it's all in that conversation, so we put it on the air. Knowing that in some way we were exposed, we were vulnerable. And it's created a bit of a controversy. Now, Ethically, I, th I think we did the right thing, but I'm not going to sit up here and tell you that we did, or that I know we did, or that we didn't. Uh, I'll have that conversation with you in 12 years. Uh, what I will tell you is that, uh, in some level, this thing is still playing out, so on some level, here I am, I'm up here, in that same state of uncertainty, that same state of not knowingness that I had at the very first third coast. I'm at my first third coast again, in some way. And I guess that's where I hope the work takes you. I hope the work pushes you, drags you back to that beginner's mindset again and again and again, to that beginner's anxiety again and again and again. Because to me, that's one definition of integrity. It's not the only definition, but it's one definition. So um, before I close, I want to say something to Julie and Johanna. Uh, I want to say thank you to you guys for continuing to convene this conversation with all of you. Uh, you've done it under incredibly difficult circumstances and you've kept it going. So you guys are my heroes. I also want to thank all of you guys for listening and uh, for being here. Uh, should we do questions, Julie? Thumbs up for Q&A or thumbs down? Three questions. And I believe there are some wireless mics floating around. I see one over here. I see two. Three questions. Question over here on the right. I'm not sure how many of you have spouses who said, oh my God, Jadabum Red's gonna be there, you have to ask him my question. So <laughs> this isn't how my spouse would have asked it, but I'm wondering how often you have been told that Radiolab is the perfect soundtrack for counting fossilized microorganisms in a microscope. And if you haven't heard that, I could elaborate at some further time. What, what, what was that? The, what, the, what, what, what? The, she was I talking too fast? Um, that Radiolab is a terrific companion or soundtrack for counting diatoms at a microscope. 
Yeah, if I could tell you how many times I've heard that. It's like... That's what I said. I was like, he hears that all the time. I'm not going to be the one to tell him. <laughs> Thank you. No, to elaborate, what does that mean? Uh, my partner studies uh, Arctic sea ice, and she does paleoclimate reconstructions using diatoms. And she just finished her dissertation and spent, I can't even tell you how many hours, in a very concentrated amount of time counting diatoms. And practically every day when I would see her for five minutes when we were both awake, she would say, do you know what I heard on Radiolab yesterday? And she heard like the entirety of Radiolab in like three weeks. Hmm. Well, th please thank her for me. Maybe one day we'll count diatoms together. <laughs> I'll let her know. Thanks. <laughs> thank you. Hi. Hi. I'm super nervous, but I just wanted to ask you, um, what do you look for to make like a complicated subject that's mostly just a thought subject? Like, it's not necessarily a character subject. Mm -hmm. Interesting, on the radio, how do you make it, you know, visual, so to speak, um, without using sound art? What do you look for? Uh, how do you take something that's abstract and sort of thinky and make it, make it, uh, make it concrete? Yeah. Is that sort of what you're asking? Yeah, and like, interesting on the radio to people who might not think they're going to be interested in that. Yeah. Well, when we do science reporting, which is much of the time, uh, that's the key question, really. Uh, and there's no set set way to go about it. I always think of it in the Scott Carrier way, which is like, how do, you, how do you take that information, which is almost like vapor, and make it physical, you know, make it almost like, make it just hit your body. And so the sound design is, is usually for that reason, to kind of create something that feels uh, like things colliding, things happening, bodies moving. Uh, and you want to embody it in some way. So, I mean, a lot of the reason that, that Robert and I are, are so forward in the program at times is that you're trying to embody, you're trying to sort of like be the vessel that that vapor can enter so that it can take a, a human form so that it, it's more relatable. Uh, so it's, it's about making it physical and visceral and it's also about embodying it in some way. Uh, and there's no set way to do that. Uh, but it, actually, I don't, I don't, yeah, without getting into some really like... Uh, boring nitty-gritty like uh, I don't there's not an easy an easy one sentence sentence answer but that's kind of the fun of it I would say that's sort of the real the real fun of it in terms of what we do Jed first and foremost your message was was incredibly meaningful uh, to me and I'm sure I'm speaking on behalf of everybody my, here. my what so was your message oh cool was really meaningful and I, 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 I heard that. mess and I was like oh, cool <laughs> it was it was far from a mess. It was very <laughs> impactful. Um, thank you for everything you said. It, it, cool, it, it struck you. a note to me. Um, I saw your, uh, your Philadelphia performance, and for those of us that, that did see it, I, I'm sure I'm speaking for, for all of us, it was a mind-blowing uh, visual experience. And I'd just kind of be curious to know, um, you know, at what, what component you see radio going to the stage. It's becoming a little more popular. Uh, what were the motivators, and what might the future be? Hmm. Uh, why we took Radiolab onto the stage? I don't know. I mean, it was just a, it was a German forest kind of thing. You know, it was uh, like, we don't know the first thing about this, so let's do it. Um, it, it was, uh, we've done live before, but, but the live that we've done has always been like uh, emulating the process of making radio, like kind of like telegraphing that for the audience. And so the experience of sitting in the seats was, oh, let's watch them make radio, uh, which is nice and that's fun, but we were thought, well, what would happen if we just sort of abandoned that conceit and we tried to make a visual experience, which is something that none of us knew much about. And it was also a cool opportunity to play with some people who knew a whole lot about it. 
So uh, it hooked us up with Palopolis, which in, for me uh, is the real gift of that whole live experience. Um, you know, being in front of an audience, uh, traveling around has been great. But the real gift of it for me was getting to watch the crazy geniuses of Palopolis try to create movement to radio, which is like, it's like the weirdest puzzle in the world. Um, like, how do you take a story of an astronaut floating in a universe, str like stranded in a canopy of stars, how do you make that visual? And they're like, oh, well, you know, we could get 3,000 LEDs and we could hand it out to the audience. And then we could create, you know, big bodies of starscapes on behind scrims. And it, just watching them try and solve those problems was uh, so uh, freeing for us. Uh, and more and more, it's like those collaborations are what sort of, for me, uh, lead you into new modes, new modes of being. So it was more the experience, of the, the creative experience was really what, what pushed us onto the stage. I'm not sure we'll do it that way every time, but it was fun. Was that three? Maybe the, one more. There's time for one more. Okay. Yeah. Let's get it. Cool. Thank you. Do you guys know the piece she's referring to? Um, Can we pull a Kitchen Sisters? What, what's that mean? Sometimes behave so strangely. Oh, sing it? Yeah, yeah. Who knows it? Oh, my God. If we're going to do that, I have to record it. Hold on. All right. <laughs> um, someone want to start this? Besides me. Go for it. That is by far the weirdest thing that has ever happened <laughs> at any talk I've ever given. Wow, thank you.